Acts chapter 12. We're going to look at the aftermath of Peter's escape from prison. If you were with us last week, that will ring a bell. If you weren't, I'll catch you up real quickly about a bad guy. This, uh, there's a, King Herod Agrippa is the bad guy in this chapter. He was a really awful man. I told you a little bit about his family tree last week. His granddad was the King Herod that was around when Jesus was born and decided to kill all newborn baby boys two and under to make sure that this Messiah didn't live. And so he, like this, in, in, just this mass murder of all these babies was his grandpa. His uncle, um, uh, King Herod, I get all the King Herods in their, in their, last, their last names. Uh, King Herod Antipas was his uncle. His uncle Herod was in charge at the time of Jesus's corrupt trial that sent him to the cross. And now this next guy in the family line is who we were reading about last week. He had been married 10 times, killed most of his wives, had a lot of kids with, with his wives, killed a lot of them too. Just a bad guy, just a violent, violent man. And he was an egomaniac who um, was a people pleaser. And he always tried to make the popular choice. Whatever he knew would make him popular, he did it. And we learned last week that one of the things that made him very popular with the people he was leading, with the Jews, was that he, if he would kill one of the main leaders of the Christian church in Jerusalem, made him very popular. So the first thing that we see he did was he killed James, one of the original 12 apostles. That's the first of the 12 apostles to be martyred. Um, all but one of the original, well, Judas took his own life. And then of the other 11, 10 of them would be martyred. Only John would live out his life in captivity and die of natural causes. So he's the first but not the last of the original apostles to be martyred, was beheaded publicly. And he saw this pleased the church. So he's like, well, if they were happy over one, let's just start working through the whole group. So the next thing he does is he arrests Peter, throws him in jail, puts 16 people in guard over him and decides that after Passover is over, we're going to bring him out and he'll be the next one that we kill. However, God had other plans. For whatever reason, he decided it was time to bring James home, but not Peter. And we just learned that, you know, when God decides it's time to bring somebody home, we don't always understand why or when or his timing. But for one, he says, it's time for you to come and be with me. And another, he decides, no, I'm not finished with you yet. You're going to live some more. And so Peter was miraculously uh, delivered from prison by an angel who shows up, wakes him up, helps him get his clothes out, leads him past the guards through the gate, and then drops him off in the middle of the street. Then the angel disappears. Peter comes to his senses and is like, wow, I'm, this wasn't a dream. I really escaped. Knocks on the door, finds the church prayer meeting, gets them all excited for a while, but realizes I better get out of town. Thankfully, the Lord delivered me from prison. He probably has a purpose for me greater than being rearrested in the morning. So he gets out of there. He escapes into the shadows, and we only hear of him one more time in the book of Acts. And now Luke starts shifting his attention to the ministry of Saul, the apostle Paul. But right in between there, we're left with this question. Why is it that God seems to let bad people take control of things and get away with it? I mean, you look at it today in my lifetime, I won't start naming names. Lots of evil world leaders, evil governmental leaders who hurt people, abuse people, kill people, torture people. And they seem to like get away with it. And there's this reconciling part of our brain that says, how can this person get away with that? And yet you have good, righteous people for Jesus, you know, dying young, dying early. How is it that this guy continues to live the life that he lives as a king? 
and the blood of the apostles are being spilled on the streets of Jerusalem, how is it that the bad guy seems to win at the end of the movie and the good guys die? That's an unfair distilling down of it. There's a lot more complexity there than that. But before we get to Paul, we do need to see Luke tells us what the next chapter of King Herod Agrippa's life was like after he martyrs James, and now he's got a scandal on his hands because morning comes quickly and the sun comes up and word gets to Herod that another apostle has escaped. He would have been familiar with the time that Peter and John were thrown into prison and the whole council gathered together to sentence them. And when they sent to bring them from prison, they were gone having a Bible study that somehow miraculously they escaped from prison. So Herod thinks, not on my watch. I'll put four times the number of guards on them. And he finds out the next morning that Peter has escaped. So what happens next? Let's read Acts chapter 12, verse 18. At dawn, there was a great commotion among the soldiers about what had happened to Peter. You think? The actual original language says there was no small commotion. In other words, there wasn't a small commotion. There was a huge commotion. Now, why was that? Because the guards knew that if you were assigned to a prisoner and they escaped from your watch and you couldn't find them, whatever the sentence was on the prisoner you were guarding got passed to you. So they knew Peter was... So we find out what their intentions were for Peter. He was supposed to be killed. Let's keep reading. Herod Agrippa ordered a thorough search for Peter. When he couldn't be found, Herod interrogated the guards and sentenced them to death. So we know immediately what his intentions were for Peter. He was going to kill him. And since he couldn't kill Peter, and Peter escaped on the, on, on the watch of those 16 guards, he has 16 guards executed. This is a full-blown scandal. This is embarrassing to him. Here, he was so popular among the Jews because he was a guy who was shutting down these radical Christians. He could care less about their religion. He just knew it made it popular among the Jews. He knew the Jews hated them. And so he was shutting them down, exterminating them one at a time. And the second person he throws in jail with this big show of how much force he has escapes his 16 guards. Well, that doesn't look too good on his fragile ego. So he's got to find somebody to pin it on. So 16 guards die. Now he's got 16 families who lose the provider for their home. He's got all kinds of questions to answer about what went wrong, what really happened, what's he going to do next. And he does what any good, solid person of integrity would do. He leaves Judea to stay in Caesarea for a while. Things are heating up politically. There's a scandal. He goes, retreats goes and takes a vacation, goes to Caesarea, gets out of town and leaves his minions handle the mess. Let's keep reading what happens next. Now, Herod was very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. Now, this is new. We found out he has beef with people from Tyre and Sidon. He's angry with them. They're not angry with him, but he's angry with them. We don't know why. He's angry with them. But there's a unique relationship. The people from Tyre and Sidon need Herod. Herod doesn't need them. But the people of Tyre, Tyre and Sidon, we read, they sent a delegation to make peace with him. Why? Because their cities were dependent upon Herod's country for food. And now we have some political dynamic here. Tyre and Sidon 
didn't have the ability economically to keep their community fed. They depended upon Herod's governmental handouts to feed their people. And once Herod gets mad at them, that puts their food line in jeopardy. And so the people of Tyre and Sidon get together and say, our only hope is to get back in his good graces again. We got to get, we got to figure out what's going to make him like us again. But we need to have a meeting with him. So uh, the delegates won the support of one of my favorite names in the New Testament. Feel free to take this for one of your son's names. Those of you that are going to have kids down the road. The support of Blastus. That was Herod's personal assistant. And they somehow win him over. And so Blastus grants them an appointment with Herod. So Herod agrees. These people that he's angry at, he's going he's to come and do a photo op. He's going to do a PR campaign. We find out he's going to come make a speech. He's going to get dressed in fancy clothes and come make a speech. So what happens? Verse 22. When the day arrived, Herod put on his royal robes. Now, the ancient historian, historian Josephus, a first century Jewish historian who writes, he has, I have the entirety of his works in my office, a copy of them. I don't have the original ones. That would be great on eBay, but I don't have those. I just have a copy of them that I bought on Amazon, like where, James, where Zach got his futon from. Uh, I have you know, his, his books in there. And um, he writes about this event from an eyewitness perspective or from a first century perspective. And he says what Herod was actually wearing that day was this uh, outer garment that was made completely of silver. So it was heavy. And it was very shiny. It was reflecting the sunlight so much so that the people who were hearing the speech actually thought it looked like he was glowing in the sun. He looked like divine. You actually couldn't even look. It hurt to look at him because he was, you know, he's basically wearing gigantic mirrors and it's just reflecting the sun on everybody. He sat on his throne and he made a great speech to these people. Now, here's the thing. These people are not dumb. They're pretty wise. They recognize with a people pleaser, with an ego issue, you know what, you know what their love language is? Flattery. Just tell them how great they are. And you tell them how great they are, you don't even have to be sincere. You tell them how great they are, they'll give you the keys to the kingdom. You know, you have, to, you have to be careful. There's a difference between complimenting someone and flattering them. They might sound the same, but the motive is different. Flattery always has a string attached. It's you using a compliment to manipulate somebody, to plant a little seed so that'll come back to you in some way, to get them to do something. And you know people who love flattery. And I, you also have to be on the other side of that and say, you know what? If I'm a person who really needs approval from people, if I have some insecurities, it doesn't make me, doesn't make me a, you know, a, a complete huge failure. What it means is I've got to be aware I am susceptible to flattery. Look, I, I, with, my, with my four-year-old, he knows how to work me. And I don't like to be worked. And I try and, you know, toe the line. But he just knows there's little things he... At four, he found out where I am, weak and vulnerable. <laughs> he does this thing that for my nine-year-old would be very disrespectful for him. He stopped calling me daddy. He calls me by my first and last name. <laughs> and I don't know why, but it melts me. He knows he changes his little voice because he's good at doing impersonations. He changes his little voice. And he knows, like, I'll, I'll be dog-tired. Like, yesterday I was, random story. I'm, I'm a little off the trail. I'm going to get back on it in a second. You know, and I'm, I, had, I, had do, I had work I was doing that was physically intensive, and I, had, I was 
carrying heavy things up and down steps and up and down steps. I'm tired. I'm sweating and sweating and sweating. I sit down. I just want to sit down for a minute. He comes up, comes up next to me. He looks, I know already what's coming. And I'm already knowing what the answer is going to be. It's going to be in 30 minutes, buddy, because daddy's tired. And he just says, he looked at me. He said, hey, Phil Nowhere, <laughs> do you want to play with me? Yes. <laughs> he just knows. He knows if you just come up and said, hey, Dad, can you play with me? The answer would have been no. But he's like, hey, Phil, now where? You want to play with me? Because his L's and his W's sound the same, and he just leans. He knows when he comes to me that way, he's going to get the keys to the kingdom. These people know the way to Herod's heart. He gets done with his speech Luke says, he doesn't even tell us what the speech was about. Didn't matter. Here's what the people do. This is their way of doing Phil Nauer. They gave him a great ovation, shouting, now that is the voice of a God, not a man. And what do you think Herod is when he hears this, right? Herod's just drinking this in. Like, if you grew up in, like, old school church like I did, we used to have these things called specials. Special meant music that was not part of the worship that usually went on during the offering, and people could bring in their accompaniment tapes, and they would play them, and we'd hand them a microphone, usually in my church, without any audition, and we would sit there and enjoy or endure whatever happened for the next five minutes. And, you know, we had some people who were on the regular rotation, and uh, it was almost predictable. At the very end, our church, no matter whether it was good or bad, we gave an ovation. Just we gave ovations for everything to the point where they meant nothing. If you didn't get an ovation, it was like an indictment against you. And we had the, the one, and I, I'm not, I'm, we had the one young lady who wasn't very good, but she loved Jesus, bless her soul, and she sang, I think it was singing, every week. And, and when she was done and we'd clap, she would always do this. She'd go, You know, the applause would come, and she's like, no, I'm going to collect the applause, and I'm going to throw it. And it's just no to him. No, no. You know. But Herod, he's not doing that. The applause and the ovation, there's like, this is the voice of a God, and he's not doing this. He's just, he's just collecting it. He's, you know, he's, he's, he's bringing it in. He's receiving it. He's just taking it and putting it in his pocket. He is like, yeah, yeah this is the, that's right. I'm no mere man. I, this, this is the voice of a God. And they just know, like, if they flatter this guy, the, the floodgates are going to open. It will be good for them. And instantly, verse 23, an angel of the Lord struck Herod with a sickness. My question is, how did they know an angel did this if the angel was invisible? I don't know if this angel appeared and literally strikes him. With the I don't know. But instantly, an angel of the Lord struck him with the sickness because he accepted the people's worship instead of giving the glory to God. So he didn't do this. He, he did this. And here's just a really, there's so much written about this that's TMI in a lot of my history books because there's a lot, there's some eyewitness testimony of what happened here, but I'll leave that for your own journeys in Google. But he was consumed. How did he die? He was consumed with worms and died. Is that the way you want to go out? Not me. No. I mean, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about it, but I mean, eating as much pizza as I can handle and then falling asleep under a tree would be great, right? I don't want to go out that way. 
I don't want to go out that way. In fact, Josephus, who writes about this, says from the time he got, uh, I want to say this delicately, he got immediately and publicly and violently ill till he died was about five days. So God chooses not to strike him dead instantly. Everybody sees him get sick and ill and they know why it happened. And like I was talking with a couple of guys from the worship team and they're like, there must have been some conversions from the people who are like, oh man, he crossed a line with the real God there and got sick. I mean, I don't know, it's speculation, but he gets immediately, violently, publicly sick. Five days later, he's dead. He could have died instantly, but he has five days between when an angel strikes him with worms that eat him alive from the inside out. Right? He has five more days, though, to be like, you know what? I've been fighting God long enough. I need to surrender. I've been with people on their deathbed. I've not been on the deathbed with them. I've been next to the deathbed while they're on the deathbed, but I've been in the room, and it's a weird, it's, it's, it's just an, un, it's unusual. You recognize how it feels spiritually, and it's just unusual. But I've been with people. I can think, I won't tell any story, but I can think exactly where I was, what room I was in, Stella Maris, literally two years ago when someone asked me to go visit somebody I'd never met before. They were gonna die. They wanted me to just go, just try and go talk to them about Jesus. I was like, okay. I mean, and I talked with this lady. She knew she wasn't saved. She knew she had not much time to live. She knew she wasn't right with God. I shared the simple gospel with her. I asked her if she believed it. Yes, I asked her why. She told me. I asked her if she'd like to give her life to Jesus. She said yes. She gave her life to Jesus. She experienced the peace of God. And 12 hours later, she went home to heaven. Now, part of me says, if only, right? (laughs) 10 years earlier, 20 years earlier. Some people know they've got time. Some people don't. None of us know. We don't know how much time we have. But I want you to see how hard his heart was even after he had opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to hear about Jesus. He knew who the apostles were. He knew what they believed. The church was thriving in that city. He knew what they were about. He saw the mighty hand of God that he was opposing deliver deliver Peter from prison. He knows that it was an angel of the Lord that strikes him with a sickness because he tried to accept praise that only belonged to God. He saw and he knew, but yet his heart was so hard that even when he knew he was gonna die for opposing God, he remains unrepentant. Let's finish out the chapter here. This is such a... Wonderful story. Thank you for including this, Luke. Then the one of my favorite, it's a subtle word, but it's just like a jarring. Meanwhile, (laughs) here we've got this guy who, you know, body crawling with worms, right? Meanwhile, while they're probably still cleaning up the blood in the street from James and Peter, no one knows where he is, the word of God, this is not what you expect to find in the next sentence. Word of God continues to spread. And there were many new believers. I'm like, well, you think? (laughs) Stuff like this, right? When Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission to Jerusalem, they returned taking John Mark with them. What in the world do we do with this episode in King Herod's life? I think it's both a warning and an encouragement because here's the reality. God is gonna use all of us as examples. I don't say he's making an example. We're all an example. We're either an arrow that points to Jesus because we're an example to follow or an arrow that points to Jesus because we're a warning of what not to do. Which one do you want to be? Look, here's my summary. Here's what I learned about what King Herod did. And this, 
This rattles me to my core. Because most of us don't find King Herod relatable. I hope you don't. I hope you'd be like, you know what? He and I are so alike. I've killed my first eight spouses, most of my kids. You know, I've, you know, you know what I'm saying? Like, sometimes you read a story like this, and you're like, that is just a bad dude, and I cannot relate to him. Tisk tisk tisk. I hope you can't. I hope none of us in this room say, man, he and I, we just, oh, there's so many similarities. I've never met anybody like him before. Like, I hope not, right? But here's what I see. No one has ever fought God in one. God always wins. Yeah. And that's the part where the, okay, pastor, this is good. That's not rocket science. That's every cliche I've ever heard. I've seen t-shirts and bumper stickers. Like, yeah, that's, no one's fought God in one. God always wins. So here's a question. What are you still fighting God about? Believer? What is God still trying to rule over your heart that you have not surrendered to him? And in that way, you're not a whole lot different than this guy. You just think you are. The reality is, this life is not a dance, it's not a stroll, it's not a resort. Living life is a fight. It's a fight. Pastor, no, 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 that's... What does Paul say at the end of his life? Does he say, I have danced the good dance? No. I have napped the good nap. Thank you. What does he say? I have fought the good fight. If you follow Jesus, guess what? You're in the fight. If you don't follow Jesus, guess what? You're in the fight. You're one of two camps when it comes to the fight. You are fighting for God or you are fighting with God. And I thought, my Bible told me, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and I believe in my heart God raised him from the dead, I will be saved. Confess with my mouth Jesus is Lord, believe in my heart God raised him from the dead. He is both Savior and Lord. I talk to a whole lot of people who love Jesus as their Savior, but he's not their Lord. They're still fighting him. You see, you come into God's kingdom with surrender. You cannot come into God's kingdom and say, I surrender to you, and yet we're still going to fight over these couple things. Herod Agrippa spent his whole life fighting against God. Whole life. And it looked like he was winning. But no one fights God and wins. God had mercy and mercy and grace, sent messengers, sent messages, even could have struck him dead on the spot, but even gave him time, five more days, the historians tell us, to make things right with the Lord. And we have no record that indicates that he did. Maybe he did, but I have no record that indicates that. And I talk to so many people who say, I love Jesus. I'm a born-again Christian. I am saved. I'm going to heaven. And yet you talk to them a little more and you find out, but you are still fighting God over your marriage. Because there's a wife. You're supposed to be here. But you can't say two good words about your husband. You're still fighting him over money. You're still fighting him over status. You're fighting him over your time. You're fighting him over 
grudges and issues. You're fighting him over how you're raising your kids. You're resisting and resisting and resisting what God is trying to lead you. You're still fighting him. And I don't understand how you can come into God's kingdom and surrender to him and still fight him. And I just want to tell you, no one fights God and wins. You're not going to wear him out. He's not going to change his mind. You want to pray a bold, brave prayer today? Pray this one. Dear Jesus, I want you to show me what areas of my heart are unsurrendered. And don't hold anything back. Open every closet, every drawer, every trap door. Dig up everything I've buried. And if there's anything in my heart that remains unsurrendered to you, any attitude, any issue, any past unresolved hurt that I have, anything that's not surrendered to you, where I am still fighting you for lordship over my life, expose it to me so I can surrender it to you. You want to pray a bold prayer? Pray that one. Pastor, why don't you do it first? I did Friday. Be careful when you pray these prayers. He will answer them. I was sitting in a parking lot in Pennsylvania, getting ready to come home. And I had been meditating on this throughout the afternoon and I just in that moment not even thinking I was going to preach on it just said you know I just, I felt this conviction of like Lord I don't want to go down the trail of this guy you know how he, how you end up like him you just harden your heart a day at a time that's how you get there well how does my heart harden anytime God speaks to you and you don't listen it hardens a little bit says Hebrews that's what it says he says today if you can hear God's voice then don't harden your heart like they did in the wilderness because it doesn't get from, from soft to hard overnight. It's a day, it's resisting over time and it just gets to the point where it's so calcified that you feel nothing. And if you feel nothing, you'll repent for nothing. If you repent for nothing, you'll never get into heaven. What do you think the unpardonable sin looks like? It's where you totally grieve the Holy Spirit to the point where you feel no conviction. It's not that God cuts you off, you harden your own heart. And if you don't confess your sins, he's not gonna forgive them. And if you don't feel the conviction of sin, you won't confess them. So the easiest thing for you to do is harden your heart so you feel no conviction. It's another message for another day. But it's that thing in a nutshell. That's how that works. I'm sitting in that parking lot. I say, I prayed that prayer. And immediately God showed me this. I won't tell you what it is because it's a little personal. But I was like, oh, oh. And you'd think I'd been like, okay. As a pastor, I just immediately surrendered. And I sat there for a second. I was like, well, what, what does surrendering this even mean, God? What does that even look like? How do I do surrender? And he just said, let it go. Uh, but God, if I let it go, who's going to make sure that it, and here I am fighting God for his job. Well, God, if I let it go, then that means I can't, what if it doesn't? He's like, he, and he whispered, you mean control it? Yeah, control, ah. Oh. Okay, you're right. I'm acting like you're not God over that. I'm not going to fight you for your job because you win. I'm going to let it go. For me, that means I'm not going to keep remembering it. I'm not going to stew on it. I'm not going to ruminate. I'm not going to rehearse it in my mind. I'm just going to let it go. That worked for about 45 minutes, and it came back, and I had to do it all over again. God, I'm sorry. Got in the playlist again. I'm shutting it down at the first minute. Next time it came up, shut it down at the 30th. That's how you have to let things go over time. You just make a commitment. You make a pact in your mind between you and God. And say, when it comes up, I'm shutting it down. I'm going to let it go. And can I tell you what I experienced in that parking lot there? I heard this phrase from another pastor this week. I experienced a baptism of God's peace. 
I don't know if you've ever experienced that. Where there's a quiet moment between you and the Lord where you just say yes to something that he asked you to say yes to. And you get this beautiful, mysterious peace. And you're like, I didn't even know how much tension I was carrying over this until the peace came. I heard one of our brothers who was in our earlier service, Brother Mike, who told me 20 years ago, or more than 20 years ago, it would have been 40 years ago when he got saved. He said it was like a, a, a 1,000 pound weight fell off my shoulders that I didn't even know I was carrying. Received a baptism of peace. How did you get there? Did you, did you finally get to peace because you pushed through and you went, no, I surrendered and I got peace. Only in Christianity is surrender a sign of strength. What remains unsurrendered in your heart? Are you bold enough and brave enough to have an honest moment with the Lord where you lay that before him again and you say, I do want to live a surrendered life to you. And if we're honest before the Lord, none of us have a clear account here. All of us have something that God's been asking you to start or to stop, to let go or to change, to surrender to him. And you have to decide, am I going to keep fighting God or am I going to live a surrendered life? The surrendered life is the strong life. The strong life is the victorious life. And we see an example of a guy who perpetually resisted God. Don't go down that trail. Go down the surrender trail. Well, how do I do that? We get a positive example here in a second. It says, meanwhile, the word of God continued to spread and there were many new believers. When Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission to Jerusalem, they returned taking John Mark with them. Now, remember with me, trivia question. It says, when Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission at Jerusalem, well, how did they get there? The last thing we read about them was the end of chapter 11. They were in Antioch of Syria. How'd they get to Jerusalem and why were they there? Do you remember? Why did they go? They were, there. They were doing something pretty spectacular in Antioch of Syria. The two of them had done a year-long teaching evangelistic outreach there where they were seeing hundreds of people come to Jesus from every tongue, tribe, and nation, and they were discipling new converts as fast as they could make, and they were teaching and teaching and teaching and growing and growing and growing and multiplying and multiplying and multiplying. And then there was a reason why they were sent on a round-trip trip from Syria to Jerusalem and back. Do you remember what it was? They were delivering an offering. Do you remember this now? They received a collection from the, from the believers there who heard that there was going to be a great famine in Judea, and they all gave as much as they could. Glad to know that I, I preached that deep down into your hearts. Um, teacher, teacher problems. And they said yes. And they all gave large sums of money to their leaders and trusted they'd do the right thing with it. And Luke says, see, they did the right thing. They went from there. They went to Jerusalem. They gave their offering, but they didn't come back empty-handed. They brought John Mark with them. But in between that verse and Herod having worms, we get, meanwhile, the word of God continued to spread, and there were many new believers. My question is, how did they do it? Think about this for a second. This is the first century. These new believers are seeing Hundreds of people get saved every day all over the city. That's probably not the reality you see right now. How did they do it? Look, they have no seminary. They have no Bible college. They have no Bibles to hand out. They don't even have, they don't have the New Testament. The Gospels aren't written yet, and the rest of the New Testament hasn't been lived yet. They don't have that. They have no literature, they have no tracts, they have no curriculum, they have no study guide, they have no Francis Chan, they have none of it. 
They have no buildings. Churches didn't own property until like the third century AD. They have no buildings. They have no strategy. They have no church growth books. They have no church growth conferences. They have no governmental favor. They have no common moral ground with the people. The people didn't even see the church as, they didn't see the Christians as good, wise people. They saw them as an eyesore and a liability to the gods. They have none of that. We have lots of that. We've got 12,000 square feet of mostly air-conditioned space. We have an awesome children's ministry. We have a great children's wing. We've got cameras and technology and computers and lights. We have the opportunity to spend $20 on Google and get invitations out to tens of thousands of people about an outreach event. I have 25 Bibles in my office by myself. We have right now media. We have curriculum. We have more church growth books and conferences. They had none of those things. And they have some results we don't see Every day, all over the city, people being saved by the power of Jesus Christ through the testimony of unseminary, educated, run-of-the-mill Christians who don't even have a Bible to give them. All they have is the truth of the Scripture reinforced by Jesus, the facts of Jesus Christ, and a life that was radically transformed, and that was working. Strategies don't work. Jesus works. Jesus works. But how? How did this all happen? I'll read it to you, Acts 13. I'll just read a couple verses, and then we'll stop. Read the first three verses here. Among the prophets and teachers of the church at Antioch of Syria. So here we get a quick roll call of kind of the church leadership. Doesn't say there is a pastor, and then a number two, and a number three, and a number four. Just says there are prophets and teachers. It was kind of like a cohort. Even though we know Barnabas was the guy they looked to for leadership, and Barnabas went and got Saul and brought him up and established his leadership there. Let's look. It says, among the prophets and teachers of the church were Barnabas, who was a Jewish guy from the islands, Simeon, called the black man, who was from, we believe is from the African nation of Niger, not 100% sure, but we're pretty sure he was from northern Africa, Lucius, who was a Cyrenian, you have Manian, who, guess what? He was the childhood companion of Uncle Herod, which is crazy that God put people... Anyway. And then you have Saul, who is Jewish by ethnicity and Roman by citizenship. You have probably the most culturally diverse group of men you could get among five of them at that point. And what are these five people who probably outside of Christianity don't have much of a relationship with one another? What are they doing? Verse 2, one day as these men were worshiping the Lord and fasting. That's the people that you want to be around, man. People who will get, you can get around them and say, let's just shut everything down for a little bit and go after Jesus together. Man, if you have you somebody like that in your life. The Holy Spirit said, appoint Barnabas and Saul for the special work to which I've called them. So after More fasting and prayer, the men laid their hands on them and sent them on their way. So Barnabas and Saul were sent out by the Holy Spirit. You've got this multi-ethnic movement going on. And you see this church without all of the resources we think. I mean, look, it was, I wasn't here at the time, but I mean, Julie and some others of you were. It was hundreds of thousands of dollars 
that were invested into just getting Echo started. It was a couple hundred thousand dollars. I mean, we had to buy a bus and a trailer. You had to rent a space. You had to have sound system and lights and equipment. And, you know, you had to, you're making nurseries and school hallways. And it was a massive investment to get the resources together just to open up a church in this community, to be able to have a space to meet. They had none of those things, none of them. And yet, they have a ministry that we all look at and are like, I want that. I want to be a part of that. How did they do it? Here's the rocket science thing. You can write this down if you like to take notes. If not, just take a picture in your brain. None of this is rocket science. You're going to think I didn't spend a lot of time on this. I promise you I did. But this is just what I see. I'll call it like I see it here. What do I know about this church? How they start a powerful church with, and I say not, with no resources. No, they had the, re- here's the resources that they had. They were unified. Verse 1. You have five people who didn't come from the same family tree, different races, different tribes, different tongues. And we don't know a whole lot about what they talked about. Here's what we know. We know they felt comfortable getting together and putting their calendars and schedules, schedules aside for a day to give up food, worship, pray, and fast together, and then enjoy God's presence with one another. That's a beautiful picture of church. They were unified I also see they enjoyed the presence of the Holy Spirit together. They enjoyed the presence of God together. They actually experienced God's presence and they enjoyed it. So much so that they they rearranged the rest of their schedule around their presence spent with the Lord together. What else did they do? They heard and obeyed the word of the Lord. Word of God comes, says, set aside your two best leaders for me to do a different work. And like, ah, that doesn't sound real good, God. They fasted and prayed more about it and said, okay, this is the Lord, and they obeyed it. And then I see that when they went, they went with the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, how much did, add those things up real quick. Do the math in your mind. How much much would it cost for us to go out and buy that today? Anybody do the numbers real quick? How much does that cost? Yeah, thank you, Pastor Zach. Nothing. Not in terms of finances. It will cost you something to be unified. It will cost you something to enjoy the presence of the Lord together. Obedience is, it costs us something. Costs you your own, getting your own way, right? But it doesn't cost us anything. You can have all of that. You don't even have to have a seminary degree or go to a conference or listen to the guy whose church is running 10,000 to distill it down and say, you buy my book and you can do the same thing. They were unified. They enjoyed the principle. It says they worshiped together, those five, six guys. They worshiped together. It was an expression of their unity. That's why, that's why Keith, that's why this team They encourage you. Listen to what they say. Sing with us. Because they understand there's a difference between a concert and a worship service. And the main difference is who the audience is. You're not the audience for the worship service. I'm sorry, you're not. You're not the audience. We're not singing to you. We're singing to him. We're the choir. We want to make it easy for us to get to unity in our songs. So you sing with us. We sing together. We're not singing to please you. We'd we'd be neurotic if we tried to please all of your musical preferences and tastes. Good grief. 
unified in their worship. And if you want to have a strongly unified congregation, you have to be okay when people are divisive to either rehabilitate them or let them go. They are unified. It's a powerful thing. They actually enjoyed the presence of the Lord together. Can you let this sink in for a moment? It says, one day as these men were worshiping the Lord and fasting. You know what that means? There was a certain day where they, most of all these men, for all we know, as far as we know, all these men, they weren't getting a salary. They were working other jobs, bivocational. Some of them had families. Some of them didn't. But they said, you know what? We've got this church we're trying to grow, right? There are people in our city that are lost. There are people that are unsaved. We've got this ministry that's going crazy over here and this one that's not doing so well. We had 30 new people saved yesterday and we don't have any place for them to meet. Where are we going to start another group? Do we have another teacher that's ready to teach them? How are we going to grow this church? Where's the strategy? Where's the solution? You know what they didn't do? They didn't say, you know what? Here's the brain we need to pick. If we can just go talk to this guy, if we can Skype him in for something. Oh, we don't do that anymore. Zoom him in for something. They didn't do that. They didn't say, which conference can we go to? Which book? They had none of those options. You know what they said? Here's what they did. For an indefinite period of time, they set their schedule aside, and they said, let's go to the Lord together. Let's just, we've got a need here. There's something, we're in a fight here. And what we need to do is we need to just, just for a little while, we need to go up in the treehouse and we need to pull up the ladder and we need to just worship the Lord. We're not going to take time to break to eat. We're going to fast. We're going to seek the Lord. We're going to press into heaven. We're going to fight through this, whatever this is, and we're going to hear from the Lord together for what we need to keep doing this mission. And my question for you is what prevents us from doing that right here? What prevents you and me from saying, you know what, from time to time, We're just going to shut down what our other priorities are. We're going to let the schedule just float for a little bit. We're going to dispense with the structure and the order. And we're just going to seek the Lord together. We're going to enjoy his presence together. We're going to pray together. We're going to worship together. Whether we have people leading us with a band or whether there's no instruments in the room at all, we're going to worship the Lord together. We're going to enjoy his presence. Heaven's going to come down and we're going to hear from him and God's going to speak to us. What prevents us from doing that that way? What prevents us from that? You know, you know, truth of the matter is most of us don't like being in God's presence together that long. We don't like being together in God's presence when it bumps up against our more important things to do. As long as I've been a pastor, this has been true. It's not just unique to us. I've been a pastor for 20 years. More than 20 years. Gosh, I'm old. Goodness, yeah, 1998, that's what, 23 years? 20 sounds better. 20 years. (laughs) I remember what it was like to tarry in God's presence. This day and age, man, it gets to 18 after, and I know 20% of the people are going to bounce doesn't matter what God's doing or not doing. And I know there's a big difference between tearing in God's presence and enduring a long-winded preacher. I get it. I get it. I get that. We make time for so many other things. Nobody complains when the game goes into overtime, when the stores open early or stay open late. I've heard people lose track of time. I'm sorry I'm late. There was such a good sale. I couldn't. 
There's other things in life where you just forget about your other priorities and you immerse yourself in it. But man, sometimes it's like you go an extra five minutes and the volunteers are ready to quit because they only signed up to be here till X minute and you go too long and it's, I don't care what was going on in there. It's like, we've got things to do, really. If you cannot spend time in God's presence regularly, you're too busy. God's not asking you to be that busy. And that will not wash on judgment day. God, I would have spent more time with you, but I was working so hard for you. And he's like, what? Your work is to know me. Here's my other question. If you don't enjoy being in God's presence with God's people, that just doesn't do it for you? What in the world is the appeal to heaven for you? What do you think heaven's going to be like? There's going to be a big football game, lots of sales, good food. It's being together with Jesus and your brothers and sisters in the unfiltered presence of God. That's what heaven is all about. I don't understand how you can say on the one hand, I love being with Jesus. I just don't want to be in his presence more than 75 to 90 minutes a week. That's like saying to your spouse, I love you with all my heart, but one hour with you a day is all I can take. I'm not talking about churches that just go on and on and on and nothing is done because trust me, that's an, that grieves the Holy Spirit just as much. Pastors that have nothing to say that are going on and on and on just to hear themselves speak or they have a 20-minute comedy routine because they just want to entertain you. My job's not to entertain you. My job's to equip you. Entertain, I'm just good because I am not wired to entertain. My nine-year-old insists I am not funny at all. He reminds me all the time. My jokes are corny and the older I get, the worse they get, I guess. But that's not my job. My job is to equip you to do the work of your calling. That's my job. You've got more important things to do. Yeah, I'm all for a sense of humor when we can find it. But at the end of the day, church, I'm telling you, get ready. Get ready. Because I'm going to stretch you. I'm going to stretch you. Because in this season we're moving into, there will be times and services where we will sense the Holy Spirit and we will suspend the structure of what's going on to just seek the Lord together. And some of you are like, yes, I'm ready for that. And others are like, what, are that, what does that mean? Uh, it's a little scary. I'll watch. I'm kind of curious. But it's easy. You just practice. Just practice being in God's presence on your own time, and this will be familiar for you. Just practice being in his presence. So here's the thing. Once you taste it, then you'll be like, I, I want more of this. <laughs> more of this. It's hard for me to remember what it's like to live without that access. I enjoy, I enjoy God's presence. But you know what I love? I love being together with like-minded people and enjoying his presence together with somebody else. And that's why I started praying, Lord, I understand a lot of my calling is going to be giving out to people who are in crisis, who need counsel. And I, I'm here for that. I signed up for that. But will you also Will you also bring people into my life who are hungry for God, just like my, I am, that when we spend time together, it's not about crisis, whether it's just about the Lord and the things of the Lord and talking about the Lord together and praying together and fasting together. And God has one at a time been bringing people like that in my life. I leave those conversations not drained. I leave those conversations filled. Give me five people like that. We'll turn this place upside. Give me, ten, give me 25 people that hungry for Jesus. That says, you know what? Yeah, let's, I sense this moment right now. And hey, let's go. Let's go for it. Let's go for him. 
We're in, we're in go mode right now. And the solution for Echo growing into what we're supposed to be next is not buried in any of the hundred leadership books I have in my office. It's not in there. I'm not going to those books. You know where I'm going? I'm going to Jesus. I'm going to him. And I'm saying, make me over. Change me. Change us. I want to encounter and experience you in ways I've never seen before and in familiar ways. I want you to blow my mind. I want anything in my heart that's unsurrendered. Leave nothing off limits, no matter how painful it is. And he answers his prayer, and I'm like, I immediately regret that prayer, but okay. Let's go with it. People will line up to experience a God like that. Couldn't fit that many people in a building around here. God show up like that. When the word of the Lord came, think about the word that came. These brothers, elbow deep in ministry in a city they loved, everybody in their church probably came in under their leadership. They know them all. And the Holy Spirit probably gives a word of prophecy to one of the men in the group, and he speaks up. He says, all right, separate for me Daniel and Caleb. Give me Daniel Moore. Give me Caleb Barlow. Set them aside. I have a special work for them. And they're doing what you're doing right now. And I'm just messing around. I, I'm not trying to send Daniel and Caleb off to Afghanistan today for Jesus. I'm not. That's not what I was doing here. But they're paying attention. To what's he going to say? No, 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 no. But listen, this is, what they're, this is what's happening. There's five dudes there. And God says, all right, you two. The rest of you guys need to lay hands on them and send them off. I've got a special work for them. And that's the end of the word. Can you imagine how unsettling that is? Because I have a list of follow-up questions if I'm in the room. God, there are two main leaders. Uh, do you have a replacement plan? Is there a succession thing here? Who's going to, how are we going to, these people are integral to our church. How can you send them to another ministry? I wrestle with that on the daily as a pastor. Because as a pastor, I recognize that God's always sending people to new works and new ministries, and that's hard. You get to depend on people. And you say, God, not this. you are working off the wrong list, God. I could give you a list, not of my church, but other church. I could give you a list of people to move on. Where are we sending them? I'll let, I'll let you know. How long? How are we going to pay for it? How are we going to replace them? I don't know. How are we going to do our ministry here if those two people leave our church and go to another church? It was an indefinite word. It was clear. He gave them a step, set them aside. Okay, God, be more specific. What kind of work? And he gives them a word. He's like, I'll be more specific. You know what word he gave them? Special. Oh, thanks. That's very clear. A special work. We'll have a special meal. We have a special seat. That means just as a special work, different from this one. And what do you do when you get a word like that from God? You're like, I think this is from, I'm sure that this, I'm pretty sure this is from God. But I don't know what to do. This is really a big thing. He's asking our church to, to think about more than just our church. He's asking our church to take two of our most important men and lay our hands on them and bless them and not have God take them from us, but have us open up our wallet, as it were, and give these men to whatever God wants and trust that he'll still take care of our needs here. A mission's heart. They were not a gathering and hoarding church. They were an equipping and sending church. 
That is who Echo is to be. We're not a people hoarding church. We're equipping and sending every week. We send you out of here. We don't just, we send you out of here on a mission. And they ultimately, you know what they did? It says they fasted and prayed some more. <laughs> Have you ever done that? Thus saith the Lord, he speaks to your heart, and you're like, wow, okay. Um, I need to pray about that some more. <laughs> I need to think about that some more. It's okay. They fasted and prayed some more. They didn't just say no. They fasted and prayed some more. And at some point, when they got done fasting and praying, they all felt, all right, we need to lay hands on these men and send that they obeyed the word of the Lord. It says they laid their hands on them. Not this way, but this way. Laid their hands on them. And they didn't say, all right, God stole these people from our church to go send them to some lost nation. They sent them out because God wanted them to be vested, not violated. You can't take from me what I give you. They said, no, God didn't take them from us. We sent them. If you've been with us for a while, you've been part of services where we've sent. We sent Mark and Jen Wagner to a new ministry in the Eastern Shore. I got to see, we met up with them over vacation. They're doing great. Kids are growing. They're getting more hair. I'm getting less. It's awesome. We've laid hands on Pastor Stewart and Heather Ross, and we sent them to another church in Ohio, and now they're senior pastors of a church. We sent Doombi Mabiella to do a work in another ministry. She ended up in Texas and now just finished her first book. I got to be part of the committee that reviewed it. It's going to publishing. Every time those people left, I shed tears. I said, God, what, how are we, what are we going to, and every time, God's blessed that sending heart. But when we go, we don't just go, Paul and Barnabas didn't just go with a bunch of knowledge, with a bunch of stories. They didn't just go with a bunch of Bibles. They had none. They didn't go with a lot of money. They had very little. They didn't go with a whole team. They didn't go. They went with the power of the Holy Spirit. And don't get me wrong. We have bumper stickers. We have T-shirts. We have ads you can like and share. We have a building. We have all kinds of resources. It's all well and good. But if that's all we have and we don't have the power of the Holy Spirit, it's just propaganda. It's just empty. You can go to any space in town and hand out $5 bills and get a crowd. Pastor, how are we going to grow the church? Well, give me a thousand bucks at ten dollars a person. I can get, you know, I'll get it. Hey, come sit in this seat for now. It's like a timeshare thing. You know, it's not hard to gather a crowd. That's overrated. What do you have? Do you have power or no power? People walk in and out and feel nothing, sense nothing, hear nothing. Why would I want you to follow a God like that? Might as well rip up the Bible and be done with it. There is a power God makes available to us. And we're not just sending you out of here with Bible knowledge. We're not just sending you out of here with fill in the blanks. I hope we send you out of here in the power of the Holy Spirit because that's what changes lives. That's what gives you courage. That's what gives you boldness. And that's what makes your words effective. I'm not just giving you an elevator speech to memorize. You have a story, your story. You have Jesus' story. And the Holy Spirit provides the power and that's the formula that they had to be able to convert entire cities and nations. What's keeping us in the way? Unsurrendered hearts. We don't like being in God's presence that long. We're resisting the word of God or we lack the power of the Holy Spirit. Very simple. Costs us, costs us no money. At the same time, it'll cost you everything else, but it's so worth it. Somehow, you, somehow on the other side of it, when you say, it's cost me everything, and it was the best bargain ever. 
Do you know Jesus like that? Worship team, come on back. Will you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? And listen, I promise you, I know I came out a little hard on not liking to be in God's presence. I'm not looking around to see if you have to walk and pick up your kid where there's no judgment. I'm not going to be like, see, I knew it. And they're ducking out of here at 1217. I don't want to scare you into God's presence. I want to inspire and invite you into God's presence. Because in just a few minutes, we will go our separate ways. I do know, and I am sensitive. We have other things. Those kids are not going to, those walls are thick, but those kids will tear them down after a while, I know. (laughs) Two of the lead terror downers belong to me, so I understand. (laughs) But can I just ask you to let this question roll around in your mind for a minute? What area of your heart is still left unsurrendered to Jesus? I had a, a really cool moment with a young man after the first service. I've known him for a while. He came up to me. It's the first time in all the years that I've known him. He said, Pastor, it's smoking cigarettes, man. I, it's been years. I started smoking in elementary school. I'm embarrassed. I'm ashamed. It cost me so much money. And that's the thing that God's been asking me to try. It was just something. I totally was not expecting that. But he's like, I'm, just, I'm so ready to be done. And, man, we just prayed together and prayed the power of God over him and was able to talk to him about celebrate recovery that's coming and some other things and encourage him. But you could just tell in that moment, God just met him there because it was just raw honesty. He said, I didn't even want to. He's like, he's like, it's just so funny. I'm even talking to you today. He's like, because I saw you walk outside the church after the first service and I was sitting in my car and I quick hid my cigarettes because I didn't even want you to see him because I was so ashamed. And here I am confessing it to you. I said, brother, that's already a breakthrough because you're just getting honest with God. Listen, what do you need to be honest with God about this morning? Soften your heart. Surrender that to him. Heavenly Father, I just pray a spirit of surrender come over this house today. Let my brothers and sisters see the wisdom in surrendering whatever it is that they're holding on to that's in between you and them in order that they can experience a soft heart, in order that they can experience the full measure of the power of your spirit, in order that they can just be released from whatever shame or guilt or pain that carrying that thing with them is causing because we do not want to be fighting against you. We're not fighting you for your job anymore. We're fighting for you. We're fighting, we're fighting along, we're not alongside you. We're fighting under your leadership now for your kingdom. I don't want to assume everybody in this room has made a decision to follow Jesus. If you know that you are not right with God and today is a day you need to be saved by the power of Jesus Christ through his grace by bringing your faith to him and you are ready to enter into relationship with the God of the universe and to receive a brand new life, yikes. I want you to pray this prayer with me. Jesus, I admit that I'm a sinner and I've disobeyed you. I recognize I deserve punishment by death. I really need to be forgiven. I need a new start and my only hope of that is in Jesus. And so I do confess with my mouth, Jesus, you're Lord. And I do believe in my heart, Jesus, that you lived a sinless life. You died on the cross in my place but you also resurrected from the dead and you're alive today. That's my confession. That's my belief. And so I bring that to you, Jesus. And and I'm ready to receive forgiveness for my sins from you. I'm ready to invite you to come and live inside of me. I am ready to full, complete surrender to you. Baptize me in your spirit. Baptize me in your power in order that I can be everything you've called me to be. I thank you for saving me. In your mighty name we pray.